Hi all and welcome to Roshcast for episode four. We've received quite a bit of really good feedback and are working on some exciting changes for the coming episodes, so stay tuned. And keep the feedback coming to Roshcast at roshreview.com. And one last plug here, don't forget to subscribe so the Roshcast is downloaded automatically onto whatever device you listen from. All right, let's get started. A 55-year-old woman with a history of gallstones presents to the ED with right upper quadrant pain. She has fever to 38.9, her pulse is 110, blood pressure is 98 over 64, and she has a respiratory rate of 22 with a saturation of 99% on room air. She has scleral icterus and appears jaundiced. She is also mildly confused. She is tender in the right upper quadrant with guarding. What is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, acute cholangitis, B, acute cholecystitis, C, acute pancreatitis, or D, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis? Will you just describe the classic presentation of acute cholangitis? This patient has both Charcot's triad of fever, right upper quadrant pain, and jaundice, as well as Reynolds' pentad, which includes hypotension and altered mental status. Exactly. It's very important to appreciate just how sick these patients really are. This is not your run-of-the-mill episode of cholecystitis. It's far more serious. In fact, patients with acute cholangitis likely need an ICU consult, if not an ICU admission. Obviously, this patient will be dosed to antibiotics. But Jeff, what bacteria are we specifically targeting in such cases? Well, we're looking for all the typical gut flora, E. coli, Klebsiella, Enterococcus, and Bacteroides. Therefore, any patient with acute cholangitis should be treated with broad-spectrum antibiotics covering gram-positive, gram-negative, as well as anaerobes. Typical choices in our hospital would include imipenem and cefepime, and likely yours as well. What was that? Oh, that, that's a trauma notification. Fancy, a podcast with trauma notifications. It looks like it's a hanging with a likely cervical spine injury. Which of the following is true regarding cervical spine injuries due to trauma? Is it A, a focused neurologic exam with active range of motion of the cervical spine is essential to clearing the cervical spine? B, a technically adequate three-view cervical spine x-ray will pick up all cervical spine fractures? C, odontoid fractures in the elderly are easily identified on plain films? Or D, the nexus and Canadian cervical spine decision rules have very high specificity? The answer here is choice A. A focused neurologic exam with active range of motion of the cervical spine is essential to clearing the C-spine. The other answer choices are worth going over since there are several important teaching points here. Choice B is wrong because CT scans commonly pick up fractures missed by x-ray. Similarly, for choice C, odontoid fractures are more easily seen on CT. The last answer choice on the specificity of nexus and Canadian C-spine decision rules is actually meant to be a trick. Both nexus and Canadian C-spine rules have very high sensitivities, nearly 100%, but their specificities are poor. Exactly. The Nexus and Canadian rules both have impressive sensitivities, nearly 100%, so they are excellent tools to rule out C-spine injuries. However, their specificities are abysmal, so they are terrible tools to rule in injuries. That's a very important point. Let's review some of the named cervical spine fractures. What is the name associated with a C1 axial load fracture? A C1 axial load fracture is also known as a Jefferson burst fracture. How about a C2 hyperextension fracture? A C2 hyperextension fracture? That would be the hangman's fracture. And finally, before we move on, can you remind me of the actual criteria outlined by Nexus? Yeah, there's actually a pretty good mnemonic to help us out remembering the Nexus criteria. When you think of Nexus, remember NSAID. N for neurodeficit, S for midline spinal tenderness, A for altered mental status, I for intoxication, D for distracting injury. If any of these are positive, you need radiographs to rule out C-spine injury. Hmm, that seems easy enough. N said for nexus. N for neurodeficit, S for midline spinal tenderness, A for altered mental status, I for intoxication, and D for distracting injury. Let's move on to our next question. 
Jeff, a five-year-old girl presents with a rash that started on her face and now spreads to her neck, axilla, and groin. Her mother also notes a URI one week prior. On exam, the patient has a rash that is tender to the touch. Which of the following is true regarding her diagnosis? Is it A, deep layers of the dermis are involved? B, it often leaves the patient disfigured from scarring? C, mucous membrane involvement is common? Or D, the disease is caused by an exotoxin-producing bacteria? I'm not going to bother guessing on this one, so just help me out here. The correct answer here is choice D. The disease is caused by an exotoxin-producing bacteria. The patient in this question is suffering from staph-scalded skin syndrome. This is basically a severe form of bullous impetigo. It is typically seen in children less than 5 years old following a URI. As the rash spreads from the face to the neck, axilla, and groin, it soon becomes exfoliative, and then flaccid bullae develop prior to desquamation. Oh, right, and you also mentioned that this rash is also tender. These patients have a positive Nikolsky sign. As a quick reminder, since this is probably something you don't perform frequently, Nikolsky sign is positive when you can dislodge the intact epidermis with a gentle shearing force. Right, that's exactly why choice A is wrong. For patients to have a positive Nikolsky sign, only the superficial layers that epidermis can be involved, not the deep. This often doesn't leave patients disfigured from scarring, which makes choice B wrong. Choice C is possible, but mucous membrane involvement is rare and is limited to the lips only. This makes choice D, the disease is caused by an exotoxin-producing bacteria, the correct answer. All right, I follow all of that, but if this is a toxin-mediated reaction and you're checking for Nikolsky sign and the fluid-filled bulleye were to rupture during your exam, would you be possibly spreading the toxin around? Thankfully not. The fluid in the bulleye are sterile. The toxin actually travels to more distant skin sites via the bloodstream. That's good to know. I would hate to cause more harm by an appropriate physical exam. Let's move up the age range here and talk about an adolescent with a headache. A 21-year-old man presents with a headache. What feature should raise a concern for a subarachnoid hemorrhage? Is it age less than 40, fever, history of IV drug use, or sudden onset headache? A classic association. Choice D, sudden onset of headache should raise a concern for a subarachnoid hemorrhage. That's correct. And since that was a pretty straightforward question, I have two follow-up questions for you. What percent of strokes are caused by subarachnoid hemorrhages, and what percent are associated with intracranial aneurysms? Subarachnoid hemorrhages account for about 10% of all strokes, and about 80% of subarachnoid hemorrhages are associated with aneurysms. 75% are associated with nausea and vomiting, 25% of neck stiffness, and 17% present with seizures. There's also a predisposition for subarachnoid hemorrhages in those with polycystic kidney disease. All great points to remember when answering questions about subarachnoid hemorrhage. Let's move on to another reason for being altered, overdose and toxicology. A 20-year-old woman with a history of depression presents with altered mental status. She is disoriented and mumbling. She's febrile and tachycardic. On exam, she has dilated pupils, dry mucous membranes, and flushed skin. Her QRS interval is 60 milliseconds. Which ingestion is most likely? Diphenhydramine, phenylephrine, salicylate, or sertraline? So this woman is febrile, tachycardic, has dilated pupils, dry mucous membranes, and flushed skin. That's the hallmark of anticholinergic syndrome. So the answer here must be A, diphenhydramine. Exactly. And there's a good mnemonic for anticholinergic syndrome that I'm sure you've heard before. Mad as a hatter, blind as a bat, red as a beet, hot as a hair, and dry as a bone. That's an absolutely classic mnemonic. Let's take a look at the other answer choices. Phenylephrine, an alpha agonist, would lead to a sympathomimetic toxidrome in overdoses. The symptoms would be similar to those seen in this patient. However, they would be diaphoretic and not dry. Salicylate toxicity is marked by an initial respiratory alkalosis followed by a metabolic acidosis and hyperthermia due to uncoupling of the oxidative phosphorylation pathway within the mitochondria. Lastly, sertraline or an SSRI overdose would lead to serotonin syndrome, 
Serotonin syndrome is characterized by agitation, altered mental status, fever, myoclonus, hyperreflexia, ataxia, diaphoresis, and diarrhea. None of those are seen here. Nice review. And what's the antidote for an anticholinergic overdose? That would be physostigmine. In the past, physostigmine was given routinely as part of the coma cocktail. However, a couple years back, there were a few studies reporting subsequent decompensation due to increased vagal tone, bradycardia, and then cardiac arrest after physostigmine administration. So physo has more or less fallen out of favor and is rarely given. Let's move on from an acute overdose to a chronic overdose in the form of a surprising chief complaint, chronic knee pain. A three-year-old girl with a history of constipation is brought to the ED for evaluation of a limp and left knee pain. Her exam is unremarkable. A knee x-ray shows hyperdense lines at the metaphysis. What do you expect to see on this patient's peripheral smear? A. Basophilic stippling. B. Heinz bodies. C. Hypersegmented neutrophils. Or D. Schistocytes. The hyperdense lines at the metaphysis here are likely indicating lead poisoning. With lead poisoning, you would expect to see a microcytic hypochromatic anemia. The basophilic stippling you might see on the peripheral smear represents clumps of degraded RNA. The answer here would be A, basophilic stippling. Perfect. Lead poisoning can cause basophilic stippling and can lead to a limp in chronically poisoned children. Lead poisoning can be treated with either oral succimer or IV EDTA in acute cases. There's another mnemonic here. I'm not sure it's quite as helpful, but I'll mention it anyway. And the mnemonic is, it sucks to eat lead in reference to the succimer used to treat lead poisoning. The symptoms of lead poisoning are often subtle, insidious, and nonspecific in cases like this of chronic exposure. Symptoms are broad, such as headache, peripheral neuropathy, hypertension, anemia, gout, and even cognitive impairment in the worst-case scenario. Can you review the other peripheral smear answer choices you mentioned previously? Yeah, no problem. Heinz bodies are denatured hemoglobin. They are seen in G6PD deficiency, liver disease, and alpha thalassemia. Hypersegmented neutrophils are seen in megaloblastic anemia, such as alcohol abuse, folate deficiency, and vitamin B12 deficiency. Schistocytes are fragmented red blood cells, and they are seen in patients with artificial heart valves, HUS, TTP, and even DIC. Great summary. And as always, let's end with some high-yield rapid review. Acute cholangitis is defined by Reynolds Pentad of fever, right upper quadrant tenderness, jaundice, altered mental status, and hypotension. The Nexus and Canadian C-spine rules are decision aids used to rule out the need for imaging due to their nearly 100% sensitivity. Nexus can be remembered by the mnemonic NSAID, neurodeficit, spinal tenderness, altered mental status, intoxication, and distracting injury. Staph scalded skin syndrome is caused by an exotoxin. It's essentially a severe form of bullous impetigo. These patients have positive Nikolsky sign. Subarachnoid hemorrhages cause a sudden onset thunderclap headache. 80% are due to aneurysms. Polycystic kidney disease is associated with an increased incidence of subarachnoid hemorrhage. Additionally, 10% of strokes are caused by subarachnoid hemorrhage. Anticholinergic toxicity can be remembered by the mnemonic mad as a hatter, blind as a bat, red as a beet, hot as a hair, and dry as a bone. The treatment is physostigmine. Anticholinergic toxicity can easily be confused for sympathomimetic toxicities. However, sympathomimetic syndromes are typically diaphoretic and not dry. A knee x-ray with hyperdense lines of the metaphysis is a classic finding in lead poisoning. Lead poisoning is treated with either oral succimer or IV EDTA in acute cases. That concludes episode four. Thanks for listening in. Remember to check out the show notes for this episode at roshreview.com slash roshcast, as well as the main site at roshreview.com for hundreds of other high-yield questions. 